Welcome, adventurers. Not all of the adventurers that occupy the land are good, and not all of the creatures that occupy the wild are bad. Joel Rigetti's Speaking Stone Studio presents... Tales from the Dungeon It's colder than a storm giant's ass up here, Zoram Zo complained. We're going to stare at this tower for how many more days before we gird our loins and go in? Havish didn't bother to turn his head. Looking glass still trained on the tower that lay ahead. Honestly, Zoram, someday you must explain to me how after all these years as a thief, you value neither caution nor quiet. Not to mention your uncanny ability to exaggerate in every circumstance. Are you eager to die today? No? And shut your warning mouth. The observed tower stood on a solitary rock pillar that was surrounded on three sides by a ravine. The ravine was roughly thirty feet wide. Where it started north of the tower, it was thirty feet deep, but it grew deeper as it passed east and then south of the tower ending at a depth of over sixty feet. Boulders and jagged rocks littered the ravine's floor. The base of the tower itself was only slightly smaller than the pillar it occupied. And on the west, where the pillar was not surrounded by the ravine, the ground fell away hundreds of feet down a sheer rock face. To the north of the tower and on the same side of the ravine as they now stood, the mountain rose steeply another three hundred feet to its peak. From the east, a single stone bridge, a little over three paces wide, crossed the ravine to the tower's perch. The tower was cylindrical and rose at least a hundred feet above its base. It was made of a white stone, unlike the gray granite of its surroundings. The stone either possessed a bluish tint or reflected the surrounding sky. In the clear, cold mountain air, it almost seemed to shimmer. Every three stories the tower's circumference decreased. At the tower's peak, against all logic, grew a massive tree. The tree's roots lapped over the sides of the top level, twisting and gripping down the tower's side some thirty feet. The tree's large, twisted trunk and green canopy leaned perilously to the southwest in such a way as it seemed impossible that the tree had not yet toppled the tower. But there the tower stood, straight and undamaged. Seriously, Havish, Zoram continued to plead. The witch says, no one is home. And then, after no immediate response, continued. All we need do is go in and pick the lock. If there even is one, get the damn candles and be on our way. Havish collapsed the eyeglass, jaw clenching in anger, and then turned his head to look up from where he lay on his belly. Zoram, are you truly such a gob as to think we would be paid ten thousand gold apiece to stroll up to an empty tower, snatch a few items, and then stroll home? The wizard, gods help you if you were ever stupid enough to call her a witch to her face, said the tower was unoccupied when we left ten days ago. 
And in fact, she made a point of explaining that the large sum we were being paid was in case the tower's resident was to return home, whom she went on to say was extremely dangerous. Havish turned back to the tower and extended the eyeglass. He resumed his observation, even as he finished his words with Zaram. How many widows have we made? How many orphans? We get paid to kill. We get paid to steal. We get paid to fuck Scrut up. And we are only alive to continue to get rich doing that, because I make sure we don't take jobs we can't finish. Now, if you are done yapping like a sad puppy, go sit down until I am convinced we are ready to move past the looking phase and into the doing phase. Zoram frowned as he struggled to pull his cloak tighter around his form and then slunk away just below the ridge of the ravine, pressing himself against the rock in a vain effort to protect himself from the cold wind. Despite his implication, they had only been observing the tower since first light, some three bells passed. Zoram looked across from him to where Pent sat cross-legged at the base of a boulder. Unlike Zoram, she made no attempt to keep her cloak from the wind. It fluttered and snapped around her seated form, along with her long black hair. Her skin was ink black, except for the gray tiger striping along her cheeks. Her eyes were closed, but were they to open, it would be revealed that they were a liquid, obsidian black as well. No whites, no irises. Even after a year working alongside her, repentance, whom they called Pence, still made him uncomfortable. Tieflings were extremely rare, and despite her reassurances that she was not, Zoram still considered her a demon. He even had dreams in which he was consumed by a freezing blast of icy cold air, and the last thing he saw were her black eyes staring down at him as he writhed in pain. Her lids popped open. Zoram shuddered from cold or fear. What are you looking at, thief? She said, flashing a white smile that glowed against her midnight complexion. Zoram scowled, huffing a grunt in frustration, head turning, teeth beginning to chatter. The common room of the three keys was fuller than a newly stuffed pillow. Ten tables for those rich enough to reserve space were pressed right against the half-circle stage in the corner of the room. Behind those, three rows of benches held another fifty patrons who had all paid a gold apiece for the privilege. And behind that, as many as could stand, another eighty or so at five silvers a head. Despite the fact that they were jammed like sheep in a wagon on the way to market, they barely shuffled or even breathed. All attention was focused on the stage. A single hooded lantern hung over the stage, the light directed down to illuminate the performers it contained. A halfling with flowing long blonde hair sat on a stool and switched between playing the mandolin, fiddle, and occasionally the panpipes. She played with great skill and a boisterous joy, always a smile on her face. A short human male, whose head was completely shaved, kept time with everything from an ornate standing drum to a worn milk can and a large spoon. But none in the room were there to see them. 
Center stage stood a tall, slender woman in tight-fitting leather pants, a short silk robe with wild red floral patterns and long draping sleeves rolled back to her elbows, was tied neatly in place with a wide cloth belt made of the same material. Her vibrant purple hair contained streaks of glimmering silver and hung freely down on one side. The other side wound in an intricate braid tight against her head. The irises of her eyes were like the night sky itself, a deep bluish black with countless pinpoints of luminous silver. Those eyes sparkled over her trademark piece and namesake, a saffron veil. Saffron Vale was the most famous bard in all of the Bharata province, and one never knew when or where she would perform. Word would go out the morning of, and not once in the last ten years had a performance failed to bring in the biggest crowd the venue would allow. She played in small taverns, she played in playhouses, and a few times she had played in the amphitheater at Jamato itself. She danced as she sang rousing and raucous ballads. She drew tears with a cappella songs of love and loss, and she talked to the crowd, asking some who they were and where they were from. After those conversations, she would always have a song that would connect to or touch that one patron in a way that none could exactly describe after. Some had said that the experience changed their life. Tonight was no different. She had the crowd tied to her every word, to her every move. Having just finished talking to a farmer's son who had traveled nearly 30 miles to make it to Borgen in time for the show, Saffron Vale had smiled, staring at the boy for a moment, and then launched into a song about a young boy and his unrequited love from a river nymph, when Araby, the halfling musician, rang a bell. Saffron, startled by this uncharacteristic error, sang on, a professional of the highest skill. Araby rang the bell again. In an eerie silence, all the members of the audience turned their head in unison to look at Araby. Working it into her performance, Saffron turned to look as well. The halfling sat with a blank-faced expression, staring off into the crowd, a single bell in her hand. She told the bell again. Saffron finally stopped singing. She turned back to the crowd to apologize, but they were not there. There was nothing beyond the light. Turning back to Araby one last time, she made a step toward her, but she could not move. The bell tolled. Quail sat stark upright in his bed. A bell tolled in his head. Rubbing his face in disbelief, he swung his legs over the side of the bed. Reaching to the nightstand, he picked up a yellow silk robe, swinging it around his shoulders as he stood on the cold stone floor. For Bahamut's sake, he had just gotten home last night. He would prefer to sleep for another two or three days at least. Had Yellow Vale invited anyone here on her last tour? He didn't recall any such. The bell tolled again. No, someone was crossing the bridge. Havish watched for another whole bell before stowing the glass back in its leather case and crawled back below the ridge, down to where Pence and Zarum sat. He proceeded to his bag without addressing either of them, rooting around before pulling out a small packet of dried meat. Sitting, he began to eat methodically, pausing occasionally to take measured sips of water from a skin. Zarum continued to frown, 
looking from Havish, who paid him no mind, to Pence, who had returned to her closed-eyed meditation. A quarter bell after Havish had sat down, the muffled sound of footfalls could be heard coming from the impromptu path they had taken to the vantage point at which they now sat. Eighty beats after that, the fully armored form of Mockery appeared from behind a large standing boulder, less than twenty paces from their current position. Her shield was slung across her back, and her helmet was tucked under her left arm. Upon seeing Mockery, Havish carefully placed what remained of the dried meat back in his bag, took one last drink before strapping it back to his bag. Mockery made her way to the group, picked up a skin of her own, taking a long drink before saying, no sign of anyone from behind, then gulped another mouthful of water. Not that that is too surprising. This godforsaken tower is twenty miles from twenty miles from anywhere anyone is or would want to be. Havish harumped as he stood, stretching his back. Zoram is starting to wear off on you, Mockery. You know well that Daggermount Abbey is under construction just a day's travel from here. Mockery looked at him, giving a small shake of her head to indicate that she did not appreciate the technical correction. Zoram audibly snarled this time, tired of Havish's dispersions. Well, great overlord, has your fortnight of carefully gathered reconnaissance showed the way to be fortuitous? Or shall we have some astral charts read and a sacrifice a chicken to see what omens might delight? On this, our most dangerous of deeds. Havish ignored the barb as he began to carefully strap on his plate armor, which he had removed for comfort and stealth during his long observation. Busying himself with a task, he didn't look up at the group as he began to speak. The way seems unguarded, but we will proceed with caution. I will cover Zoram at the door as he assesses the lock situation. Mockery, you will be stationed on the bridge. Ten to twenty paces behind us, in case the door is trapped and we need rescuing, he said in a mocking tone as he looked up to catch Sarum's eyes, whose perpetual frown deepened somehow. Pence, I think just here at the ridge watching over us from this side of the ravine will be best for you until we have cleared the door. Only act or make yourself known in the very unlikely case that the situation becomes dire, he finished tightening a leg strap. Any questions? Zoram opened his mouth as if to make a retort, but all three of the others turned to look at him at one time. His mouth snapped shut and he snarled again. Havish placed his hands on his now armored thighs, looking at each of his party in turn. Cautiously, quietly, and stick to the plan. And maybe we won't have to draw any blood for a rare change. Standing, he pulled on his breastplate. Gather yourselves and make ready. We go as soon as I am armored. What have Havish and his band come to retrieve? And what lengths will they go to to be successful? Stay tuned next week for part two of Unexpected House Guests. Mm -hmm.